0: As your agent, I would always advise you to not keep in, doing the square peg jobs because the theory is if, you're, if your heart is in it and you love it, it's going to be good. I mean, it's going to be successful because you have passion for it. So I would never advise anybody to stay as a round peg. No, that, that would not be okay. But it might mean that, yeah. Maybe um, maybe you continue to do your day job as a square peg and then at night you do your round peg stuff and then we can switch and see if it works.
1: My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist, where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Christina Snyder, who's a former photography agent, a photo editor, A photographer and travel writer, and as of today, Christina is the founder and CEO of Snyder, which is one of the best known and most well-respected artist representation agencies in the world. And you've got offices in both the U.S. and the U.K. And most importantly, I think, is really going to help us frame today's conversation. According to your LinkedIn profile, you consider yourself a creative entrepreneur with artistic tendencies and a clear point of view on creative growth. I can't imagine a better way to, to frame today's conversation and how excited I am to chat with you. Christina, thank you so much for prioritizing the time to be here.
0: Oh, thank you, Zach. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to talk to you. It's going to be great.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about it because there's there are so many similarities when it comes to the way that creatives and entrepreneurs see the world, but you're very much in a different industry per se than a lot of the people that might be in my industry that are more entertainment industry and Hollywood centric. But I love blending all these different disciplines and viewpoints because I think it just makes us more holistic creatives and more grounded, all of which we're going to get into further. But where I actually want to start is that you may not realize this, but you and I have something very much in common which is that we both grew up in the absolute middle of nowhere in little tiny communities of hundreds, not even thousands of people, opposite ends of the earth. But I'm guessing you can relate to my struggle of growing up very creative, very intellectual in a community that did not inspire or even encourage either of them. So I want to talk a little bit more about your origin story and how you came to be the leader and founder of this agency.
0: Yeah, Zach, so that's very astute, you know, because I actually, I I see myself as a seed that was planted, but didn't really sprout until I got the opportunity to uh, come to New York a City. And so I grew up in Sweden. Uh, my family was very artistic. Uh, I would say artistically inclined, but they weren't professionals. So my mother, for instance, was a singer and she sang opera and operettos when she was younger, always in choirs, etc. My father's thing was painting. And so he started a, a painting career when he was 50, which is something I... I deeply admire, you know, he, he had success on his own level. He sold, he exhibited, but he was never in museums, but he still took painting to his heart. My sister was an amazing musician. And so, so the creativity swirled around in our family. I was a creative child, but I wasn't focused on in that way. So I think that, you know, my childhood set the seeds for what I came to do later. So I I was active doing arts and stuff and dancing and you know doing all these things, but it didn't really occur to me that this would be something that I would do until I um, moved away from home and um, started getting deeply into photography. So photography was my first love, like for a long time. Actually, I was I went to photo school. Um, I worked as a waitress and and you know did shoots and were in the dark room for hours and hours. So. I loved I love photography the deepest and still do um, and that actually led me to a job that later on I mean it's like everything is linked right so I had a job at a, at a paper where I met somebody who invited me to work on a um, on a documentation in India of photography so, so that in turn led to me meeting somebody who then took me to New York City and all of a sudden I was in this fertile ground of creativity uh, that is that actually in the East village of New York city. And we're talking 30 years ago. So it was kind of like, um, it was a very creative space. And I met my future husband, Danny there. Um, he's a musician and from being, you know, in a smaller town like Stockholm, it's, it's really a small little, you know, fish pond in this, enormous creative vibrant place in the east village which is I'm sure you know at the time uh, that's where it was happening that was all all about creativity and so all of our friends they were in kooky bands they you know did photography they, they it was just like this rich rich environment for me to explore what I really wanted to do and so I thought about something to do (laughs) because I didn't have much, you know, I had, I had a boyfriend pretty much. That was it. I had a boyfriend and a few uh, dollars in the bank. So I started to look for a job that then led me to becoming a photo researcher and a photo editor. And that in turn got me on the path to becoming a photo agent. So we're talking a span of 10 years between A and B But the photo agency uh, started about 20 years ago, 22 years ago. And so I worked as a photo agent for a good decade doing big shoots and uh, working with photographers from Europe and from the U.S. and doing portrait work, car work, location work, that kind of thing. So that, that brought me to thinking... How can I make this easier? Because doing photo shoots, uh, not producing them, but brokering them and negotiating them for photographers is incredibly work-intensive. It's just exhausting work because there's many, many, many line items, uh, proposals and and estimates that are like 20 pages long. And it was just like grueling. Uh, But I also had started a small illustration division just with a few illustrators from Sweden. Uh, at the time, my company was called Snyder and & Company, and this division was Snyder & the Swedes. I thought
1: that was very clever. <laughs> and it also so, sounds like it could be one of those kooky bands in the oh, East Village.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was so, it was like the kooky band thing was a big thing for me. So I had a small division of illustrators and I noticed how how easy it was to negotiate. It was like, rather than going back and forth and back and forth, it was like, uh, we have some money, we have a job. Do you want it? Yes. And then you were off. It wasn't any anything. and. I got to thinking about this a lot. I thought about illustration and art as a, as a way of expressing yourself a lot more. We're talking now 2009 and I realized like, you know, illustration is imagination. It comes from one brain. It really comes from one filter uh, and and that seemed incredibly exciting to me. I mean, the art love, the love of art was there uh, already, but I didn't really realize that you could do this for a living. So I started that division and that grew. And in 2013, I changed the name of the agency. I kind of uh, stopped working with photographers at that time and I rebranded to Snyder, New York. And so that became uh, a bigger division with illustrators and you know, some of those Swedes, Swedes <laughs> some of the Snyder and the Swedes crew is still there. I work with two artists, uh, Dennis Erickson and Madsberg, who were, ha, have been with me since the early days. And now when, when we rebranded it once again in 2000, uh, last year in 2022 to Snyder, just made it short, simple. And now we focus on illustration, static illustration um, and animation as well. So we are, I think, one of the few agencies that actually offer both. A lot of agencies offer, offer animation, but on our side, we do both. So it's illustrations that you would see in magazines, on cover of books, et cetera, but also animation work that you would see uh, as, as short form animations online for clients like, you know, Meta and Netflix, and you know, uh, the big companies in the world. So that is my story in a very big nutshell, I would say.
1: there's a whole lot of things that I want to dig a whole lot deeper into. One of them that I want to get to a little bit later is as somebody that's gone through multiple rebrands and also somebody who represents artists, I definitely want to get to this idea of how do I create my own brand and how do I sell my skills as valuable, especially given that people have so many different varied interests and experiences and the days of I learn one specialization and I start at the bottom of the company in the mail room and I slowly climb the ladder and I worked there for 30 years and I retire. Those days do not exist anymore, almost anywhere, but specifically for artists. So I eventually want to get to this idea of how we better brand ourselves and tell our stories and say, I am valuable, I understand your problems and I want to solve them. But where I want to go back to first Mm. is another area that I think is so important for developing yourself as a creative. And it's this continued theme of the value of the communities that you're in. And what you found, what I found is that the community where we were born and raised, where the seed was planted, well, there's only so much room for growth. And in my case, there was zero room for growth. My options were you graduate from high school and you either take over the family farm or you work road construction or you work in the woods. That was your future. That was pretty much it. And I knew that that was not the future for somebody that was interested in movie making and storytelling and being creative, and hence had to surround myself with a different community. And you also had that same realization. But I want to talk about you, both your experience, but the experience of your artists and how valuable it is to not only say, I'm going to learn my craft and I'm going to learn my skills and I'm going to network and get my resume out there and get jobs. But surrounding yourself with a peer group, similar to as you talked about in the the East Village, that had a lot of ramifications for talking to this person and meeting this person, getting this gig and getting that gig. Who you surround yourself with as a peer group can completely Mm -hmm. change the trajectory of your Mm -hmm. career.
0: Yeah. And it's it's, very often it's a lucky break. It's just kind of like where you end up. I mean, I talked about this in a different podcast about like how you how something comes comes across to you, you sort of receive a chance and you take that chance or you don't. And when I started thinking about this concept for my, in my own life, I realized pretty much I could, I sort of all of a sudden saw that all of my choices have been like that. It's been presented to me and I've either gone with it or gone away from it. And as, as all of us, but in my case, it's been very much um it's been very much influenced by taking chances for instance like meeting my husband who is American I was in New York for three days and I walked into a bar listening to some music drink drinking you know some drinks and and I turned around and there was a guy and I started talking to him so it was just a a feeling like you know this is something real I I I have to go towards this, and I I think that it's it's a, it's profoundly it has affected my life profoundly. I ended up here. I uh, am doing what I'm doing. I have a relationship. We're still married. I mean, it was incredible just based on that turn and decision to start talking to that. Person, So when I look at, I can sort of rack up my experiences and say, yeah, that was like that. And this was like that. Pretty much everything I've done, including starting this agency, has been because I felt something and it was right and I went towards it. Do you relate I love it. to
1: that? Not yeah. only do I relate to it, it's completely deviating from everything I have in my notes, but I'm fascinated by this and I want to go deeper. And there mm-hmm. are two concepts here that I think are so important to illustrate, and I just want to go back and forth on this. The first of which is the power of listening to your intuition, which as a creative is so incredibly important to deciding the work that I want to do, the stories that I want to tell, but also proximity which, again, is all about this idea of community. It, I think that it would be very easy. And let's say that this were either, you know, you met your soulmate and you got married or you started talking to somebody and they had a photography gig that led to this job to led to that job. Many people say, oh, that's nice. You got lucky. That's never going to happen to me. But in my mind, that's very much a fixed mindset. And if we reverse engineer it, I think it's a combination of you listen to your intuition But you're in proximity of the right kinds of people because you're in that bar because you made the choice to say, this is where my community is going to be and I'm going to move here. So how do you feel about those two things uh, as versus, oh, I guess you just got lucky and just happened to be the right person sitting next to you at that moment?
0: Well, see, that's the thing that I've realized. You know, I realized this maybe, I, I could say maybe only a few years ago, that that seemingly random act was not random. That was a deliberate choice and it was exactly based on intuition. And I also I also think that um, giving yourself credit for having intuition is something that has come to me of late. You know, I, I didn't really think that that was valuable. I didn't think that it had anything to do with building my company or my life. I thought it was just like, well, I just did it. I never saw the connection between um, the, the act itself and, and what I felt. And that I think is very important. You know, they, it's very important to understand how your intuition, which is when you think of it, it's your body. It's your body telling you gut feeling, etc. Your body is an instrument that can be fine-tuned to receive those messages. So I I don't think it's well, you know, it's interesting. I have thought that it was luck. I thought I've been so lucky in my life, but now I'm starting to see that I, as a person, as a physical body and my mind had a lot to do with it. So yeah. it's yeah.
1: And I I agree with all of that and uh, just to unpack it even a little bit further, what I'm not saying is that this situation was 100% in your control. But at the same time, it wasn't 100% out of your control, i.e. you got lucky. I think that there has to be a nice blend of both and a major philosophy of all the actions that I take are, is this something that I can control? And if it is, what are my actions? Knowing that there is just going to be some things left up to chance, but I can reduce the amount of the luck factor. And for you, it was, you had that intuition, you knew what you wanted, even though you didn't know that you knew yet. But again, just the, the I I cannot emphasize enough how much I've learned, like you said, just over the last few years, how important it is to be surrounded by the right people that are doing the things that you're interested in, or that are doing the things now that you want to be doing next. Because I and you can uh, tell me what it's like in your world with the the illustrators and the the artists and the photographers. But I know in my world of people that are largely editors, writers, composers, it's very solitary. It's just me and my ideas and my computer in a small dark room with four walls and you feel like you're all by yourself and to me surrounding yourself with the right people is so important do you find that either you or your clients struggle with similar challenges and they find the the value in having you as an agent
0: um well i definitely for the artists for sure being an artist is a lonely pursuit it is, as you said, you're alone with your pens and brushes or whatever, your computer in certain cases in a room. And that is a lonely pursuit. But but then you you draw from from the outside world. You have to. I mean, that's otherwise you would produce nothing. So even though you're lonely, I don't believe that people or artists or are, are really that lonely. There's, I believe, in a higher Uh, not a higher power. That sounds very weird in a way, but I do believe that we're connected to something that feeds us with creativity and that power or, well, some people call it the source energy, you know, that is something that you always carry with you. So you're not really alone really uh, when you do art, but for my artists, I have sensed that. It's a very lonely thing, and it's always about ultimately, do people like what I do? And so, when you don't have work, when you don't have inquiries, when you don't get exposure, you can get a little bit skitzed about that. And I know that because of my my past as a freelancer in New York. You know, I was a freelancer for ten years, and if nobody called or emailed, it was like. don't love me i'm Mm -hmm. i'm over i'm done i have to because it's your identity right like what i do is who
1: i am so if i can't get work and get hired and there isn't money coming in there's something wrong with me yeah it's not that it's a slow job market or maybe i wasn't the best fit and i need to find the right people it's there's something damaged about me
0: yeah i'm not good enough Nobody loves me. That's how I felt when I was a freelancer and nobody called me and I didn't have work for a few weeks or a month. So it's psychology wise for the artists. I'm sure that it's it's very challenging. It's really challenging at times. But I think what you have to do is sort of get on top of that. I mean, remedy it by getting on top of it and taking charge and saying it doesn't matter. I do it for me. I want to make money, of course, you know, but it's cyclical like everything else. Like in the in the TV and, and movie business, everything is cyclical. That That's what we used to talk about when I worked in TV as well. It just, it comes back. Sometimes you're on top. Sometimes you get tons of work. Sometimes you don't. So our job as agents, you know, I work with a team of four other people and freelancers also. Um, we, our job is... Basically, uh, you know, a little bit of psychology, a little bit of handholding, um, but also a lot of development and encouragement and coming up with ideas and listening and kind of coming up with suggestions. So, yeah. I I feel very good working with a team now as opposed to when I started and I was alone I worked I worked alone for a long time and that was not it's not very creative you need friction you need something to to sort of chafe against if you know what I mean
1: my sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the TopoMat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found mat, so you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also think uh, you need to have different, you have you need different exposure to other mediums and people in conversations than yeah. the things that you're working on. Because I have very much lived within a silo in certain parts of my career where I'm doing this one thing. So I'm only exposing myself to this one medium or this one genre of a TV show or a movie. And it's a process that I call method editing where I just really zone in on this one filmic language, which to a certain extent would allow me to specialize and get really good at that one craft. Mm. But then I, I later realized as I started to, to broaden my perspective and especially when I moved away from being quote unquote, just an editor to being an entrepreneur and getting much more into athletics and documentary directing and all these other things, my creativity really started to flourish. The more I exposed myself to totally different people, totally different conversations, different artistic mediums. And again, this that came back to this intuition that... My identity at the time, I'm an editor. That's who I am. That's what I do. It's all that I do. It's all that I do to make a living and support my family. But something's telling me there's more there. And I want to reach out and I want to try other things and other mediums, or going back to this idea of an artist trying to find their voice, there's a really big barrier for the vast majority of creatives. And that's, but what if I fail? What if it's not good? And I know that you are just as passionate about talking about the concept of failure and how vital it is to the creative process. So let's talk a little bit more about failure, what it means to be creative, why it's necessary, how we overcome it. This could easily be a three-part series in and of itself.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's good. Let me talk about my spectacular failures. Um, Well, I've had many. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said that I came to New York and I had a boyfriend. That was it. Like I I had nothing. I had experience. I just sort of went for it. But but in a way, you know, things were simpler back then. It was it was a little simpler because my horizon wasn't very open. It was kind of like I want to get to here and so it was limited, but failures, how can I talk about failures? Well, I've started several businesses that have not been great ideas and have not had not have not had like really good uh, partners. Um, I started... In 2002, uh, from nothing, no experience, I just started put up a shingle and I was all of a sudden a photo agent. Um, I had experience with bidding and I knew pricing and I knew photography and I knew good photography and I knew some contacts. But there I was like, you know, I was I started my business the year after 9-11 and that was Terrible, terrible timing. I thought I would fold, but I didn't somehow. I just didn't know what else to do. Like I did, I couldn't, I wasn't employable, I think, uh, because I've never really had a full-time job. You know, I've I've never been on staff anywhere. I've just been freelancing. So that was a failure. Then um, I opened a few other, you know, businesses that were kind of like, you know what, this is not working. I think... My trick for failure and being okay with failing is that you have to fail pretty fast. If it's not working, you kind of like cut your losses and you go, this is not working. I'm moving on. And then you forget about it. You don't think about it forever and ever. You just leave it, go on to the next thing. So failing is learning. It's experience. It's incredibly Mm -hmm. valuable to know what works and what doesn't work and what is good for you and what's not good for you. So... Through the failures that I've had, you know, I, I have learned wher- where my strengths lie. I'm a, f- a forward-facing person in the agency with talking to clients and talking to artists. But my best work is probably behind the scenes. You know, I'm I'm not kind of what we say in, you know, the kooky band stuff again, a front woman, a natural front woman, although I'm starting to like it a lot. But... I also think that maybe my skills from failing has been planning ahead, like seeing the bigger picture. So there's not just three steps, it's 10 steps ahead. Seeing this can lead to this and this can lead to that. And this is why I should do this. And maybe this would be good just in case. And, you know, kind of a, it's almost like a, chess game of trying to plan a business and, and, and being an entrepreneur and also having vibes, sort of vibing what's happening out there. Like what's trendy, what's happening, what do, what do people like? And that's very much a part of it too. But man, I mean... I could go on and on about failures, but that would be kind of boring,
1: I think. Well, I don't know if it would be boring because I think it's really valuable. And the, yeah. the first thing that I find hilarious is that you say, I don't see myself so much as a front woman, knowing know. that the name of your company is Snyder. Um, I so I, I, I find that hilarious. <laughs> um, but I, I want to dig even deeper into quote unquote failure, because as you were going through and telling the story, you were continually saying, well, this was a failure and here's where I failed. But then mm-hmm. as we went along, you started to reframe it. And this is uh, for those that aren't familiar with the work of a, a researcher, scientist and uh, a professor named Carol Dweck. There's this fundamental seminal book that I teach all of my students about called Mindset. And it's essentially an entire book about the difference between having a fixed mindset and a growth yeah. mindset. The fixed yeah. mindset is I am who I am this is my intelligence, these are my skills, whatever happens in my life is happening to me and I'm just here reacting as opposed to the growth mindset is shifting your perspective. And like you said, when it's failure, well, that was just a learning experience, that was feedback, that was data. And I've been saying for years to people that the only real difference between you and I is not my level of innate skill or talent, it's my willingness to fail so much faster than you are. Mm-hmm. I will just dive yeah. in and fail relentlessly knowing that that's going to help me iterate and learn and grow faster. And where I didn't even realize until fairly recently where that came in, it was a memory I hadn't had for years until you were talking, but uh, something that my father would say to me incessantly when I was a child, I would do something stupid or something would go wrong. And he would just laugh. He's like, you know what? You just got there, don't you? I'm like, what? He's like, you just got yourself a very valuable education.
0: So it was really
1: framed as whatever stupid thing I did or whatever happened to me, I can either say that happened and I failed, or I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to iterate. But when it comes to speed, boy, are you and I on the same page? Because I've developed this skill of embracing how quickly can I fail?
0: Yeah. Yeah, bouncing back. I bounce back really fast. I mean, I've had some experiences where, I mean, 9-11 was a terrible blow. So was 2008. Um, many other things. But I, I think I've actually developed a skill to, to sort of bounce back so fast in my head that I'm almost like, you know, I'm almost there the minute it happens. I had an experience like that, actually, when somebody was giving me some bad news about a, a, a venture that didn't work. And simultaneously in my brain, I rerouted everything and thought, OK, well, then I'm going to do this. And by the time I left that office, which was like five minutes later, I had a whole plan for how I would move ahead. It's it, I, And I realized this just not very uh, long
1: ago. That was like a
0: bing, bing. Yeah.
1: Do you think that this is something that it just is who you are and it's an innate talent? Or is it the kind of thing where you say, well, I bounce back quickly. Let's say that you have a client that's struggling with bouncing back. How would you advise them? If they're like, Christina, you just, you always seem to bounce off a failure and it doesn't bother you. (laughs) And you're just in your head at the, at that moment, you figure out the strategy. I'm really struggling with failure. How can I bounce back quicker? How would you advise your client in that situation?
0: I don't know if a client would ask me that. Maybe an artist would ask. Or an me artist, that. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Um, I would just say, well, I actually uh, spoke to an artist recently where I um, advised that person to look at what you have instead of trying to go somewhere where you're not really strong. So I would say I, the advice would probably be uh, cut your losses and try to neutralize. And see what you really have. Because you might have a beautiful thing over here that is very valuable and something to build on. Whereas you're trying to be over here and that's not working. You're bouncing against something it's not really moving. Uh, so why not just like put it down and see what you can do over here? It might, that, that's exactly what happened in my head that time actually that I was referring to. It was like, okay, this goes down and I'm looking at this now. Does that make sense?
1: Not only does it make sense, but I'm very excited for having this conversation because without you knowing it, you've basically dipped into the reservoirs of the foundational mindsets that I teach my students. And one of the most foundational mindsets is that you need to play a game of chess. Instead of a game of checkers, which you're talking about already is strategizing thing in these larger moves. And one of my clients that I'm working with right now is a couple of levels below like a chess grandmaster. Like he's played chess for decades and he's actually teaching me, first of all, the basics of chess. Because ironically, the actual game I'm not very good at. The mindset and strategy I'm good at. Um, But one of the things that he explained to me is that when you get to this master or grandmaster level, one of the biggest reasons that people lose a game is because they started with a plan. And then when the game shifts, instead of just looking at the board as it is, they're thinking, no, but 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 this was the plan and this was how I was gonna win. And those that uh, that win the most, they see a brand new game after every single move. Like, all right, this is now the game that I'm playing. Move, move, move. This is now the game that I'm playing. And they just release all those preconceived notions of where they should be.
0: That's really interesting. You know, uh, I, I had the privilege of uh, being at a hockey game recently with a young man who plays hockey and is amazing. We went as a family with some friends and he was looking at the ice, the hockey game like that. He was just looking at it as a chess uh, and he happens to be very good at chess, too. So I understand it takes a certain brain to I think to to sort of understand that, but they can definitely be teached or or taught, I think. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: All right. So let's let's go even a little bit deeper into this concept of failure. And how it Mm. connects to this next idea that I know is important to you is how you can take specific opportunities and parlay them into other opportunities. Cause I really believe that nowadays within this knowledge economy and creator economy, our careers are not going to be classical music anymore. It's not theme and variation. Here's the structure. I know it's going to happen in four movements. We're playing jazz and we are constantly having to change. And I know that for you, This idea of being able to parlay is really, really important. So either give me a specific example of yourself or an artist, for example, where we can develop the skill not only of being okay with failure, but parlaying one opportunity into a multitude of other opportunities.
0: Yeah, I love that word parlay. And I I think about it all the time. Uh, I have in the past thought about it with my own career because I started... I started at a low level uh, working somewhere where I got a chance to parlay my experience into the next. And it's just continued. I've just parlayed all my life. And it's actually, the meaning behind parlay is betting. Uh, It's a betting term, which means like you take your winnings and uh, a bet and you you bet that again. So it comes from that. Um, uh, With my own life, I would say that It's hard to discern because I'm so enmeshed in it. Like an example would be um, my first job in New York City. I worked at an international photo agency as a photo uh, researcher, and I had a very good relationship with a guy uh, that used to call for images um, from Time magazine. And... One day he just asked me out of the blue and I was kind of tired of of working at this agency. I said, would you you ever consider working as a researcher at Time Magazine? And I thought about it for three seconds. Oh yeah, why not? Yeah, I had no idea what the job was, but I could imagine that I could figure it out. So parlaying is somewhere between taking a risk and being okay with taking that risk, but also a little bit of uh, something that sounds bad, like fake it till you make it. But figure it out and you will be okay. You can do that. You can make that jump. And so that was a very specific, probably the first time that I did that. Uh, I didn't know what I said yes to, but it worked out. I worked there for a long time.
1: Yeah. There, there's there's a couple of key things here that I want. I mean, this this all of this is so fascinating. I knew that you and I were going to have an amazing conversation, yeah, which again was great. intuition because we get the email. I'm like, who's Christina Sander? She works for an agency for artists? It ah, doesn't seem like a good fit, but something says there's an interesting conversation here. And boy, was I right. So <laughs> let's talk more about parlaying, this idea of betting on yourself. And there's a strategy that I talk about with my students all the time where I tell them, and I'm so glad you said fake it till you make it because I hate that saying, especially in Hollywood and creative industries, it lends to inauthenticity and not feeling like yourself and putting a a false front up, which the entertainment industry is the best in the world at doing. Uh, What I like to say is that you face it until you make it. And what I mean is you Mm -hmm. face the fear, you face the imposter syndrome. And if you look at it as, well, am I ready to take this job? Am I ready to be a researcher for time? God, no. But if I look at my character (laughs) Am I the kind of person that's going to figure things out? And do I know enough to not fail my first week and ask the right questions and learn and iterate and be okay with failure? You're like, yeah, I'm totally that person and I can do it. But yeah. you got to face that fear until you make it. So I'm so glad you brought this up.
0: Yeah, I, I don't like that term, fake it till you make it, because it implies something, like you said, it's it's false. It's not true. Uh, but I do I have thought about it. And parlay is probably a much better expression. I mean, another example that I just thought of is like I had a a stint of about a year and a half working um, doing set photography at HBO. So, you know, set photography is like I was the assigning editor who asked the photographer to do set photography and bring it back and edit it and so on and so forth. So I had done a bunch of large shoots of very famous photographers and I had seen the paperwork. I had read the paperwork. I knew the light eye and I was like, "Aha. Uh-huh. This is like what the fee is for a portrait session. This is what they charge." And so I memorized that and as I said, hung out my shingle as a as an agent saying, "I can do this. I can I can make it up." And It worked. I mean, I knew enough to to put it together and to sort of get it going. And that's another parlay situation where I had a little bit of info. I did a lot of research and then it sort of worked out in the end.
1: But at the end, at the end of the day, you had the confidence that I'm the kind of person that's going to figure this out and make it work as opposed to, nope, couldn't do it. I don't know enough. I'm not ready. Right. And that's one of my pet peeves is people saying I'm not ready yet. And like you're never gonna be ready. Never it's gonna never, be never ever right. ever going to happen. So I always say you just you have to be prepared to not be prepared. As long as you're prepared to not be prepared and you can dive in and fail and see it as a learning experience. Well, you can essentially learn just about anything.
0: I also think that you know we're smarter than we think. Like we, we can figure things out. There's information available, especially now. Look, you know, when I started, there was no Google. There was nothing. You just have to figure it out. Ask people, take meetings, you know, have coffee. Um, So, you know, research. That's all it is. It's like if you're if you're a little bit um, intuitive and have some some drive, you can you can figure
1: it out. to learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topomat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah. And I would say that access to information in Google and now chat GPT and all these other things does not negate the need for personal relationships and building connections. And again, surrounding yourself with a peer group, surrounding yourself with experts. And when I say that, I mean like quote unquote experts, meaning these are people that have accomplished what I want to accomplish next, right? To me, you can't just fill all your knowledge gaps with a Google search. You really have to understand how did people actually do it? How did this person that has the career that I want next, how did they overcome their obstacles?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I do remember having a a lunch date with somebody when I had a brief interest in becoming a a film editor, because I thought film, photography, it's related. This is before the agency days uh, or the agenting days. And I sat down with her and she said to me, her advice to me was, tell me what you think, Christina film editors spend all their time in a dark room and there's no people around. Correct. You strike me me as somebody who needs feedback and people and you're very personable. And do you really think you could uh, live this life? So I listened to that. I was like, hmm, yeah, maybe you're right. I still love editing. I do it for myself, but, you know, I it's probably it was probably a good advice, don't you think?
1: I think that it was excellent advice. And I think that what what it was tapping into, which is another area that I work on with my students all the time, is that it's not just about what is the craft. I really like using cameras or I really like brushes. It's what yeah. does the lifestyle look like? And is it in alignment with mm-hmm. your lifestyle needs? And I'm as introverted as they could. So for me, the lifestyle of an editor completely and totally makes sense as it does for a lot of people that do it. However, the lesson I learned, it does not matter how introverted or creative you think you are. You still need those personal connections and you still need to be around people because the science is so definitive and absolute at this point that the number one determinant Of your quality of life and happiness and fulfillment, especially as you get closer to death, is the quality of your relationships. It's not how much money you had or the awards or the accolades. It's the people you surround yourself with. So given that you decided to start an agency and be surrounded by people all day long, I don't think you would have loved the life of a film editor.
0: No, no,
1: so, good <laughs> intuition. No, I'm pretty
0: sure. <laughs> Listening, that's also yeah. very important. So listen. important.
1: Uh, so, where I'd like to transition to next, and I think that your industry is maybe slightly different than the way that it works in entertainment, but I still think it's a valuable conversation, is understanding how an agency works, specifically how it serves artists and seeing the business from your perspective. And even though I'm not an agent in Hollywood, I've had an agent for years, I've talked to many of them, and essentially the agent is there to help facilitate connections, get you an interview, and then negotiate your rate and protect you but you would already mention this idea of having these conversations with your artists and really talking about next steps. And it sounds like you're offering also kind of quasi managing or coaching and not just, Hey, you get a gig or you get an interview, we're going to negotiate mm-hmm. your rate. So talk to me about what you do as an yeah. agency for your artists.
0: So we are, the agency is really like the, the connection between an artist And a commercial job. So we work with advertising agencies, design agencies, publishing houses, uh, editorial, uh, you know, magazines and and, and, uh, newspapers and anything in between. I mean, we can work with a big company like uh, Netflix and we can work with a small mom and pops kind of uh, cafe that needs uh, a map zone. So... Instead of these people, the clients, going out to search themselves for artists that that appeal to them for a certain job, they come to us and they ask us sometimes, uh, do you have a suggestion? I'm looking for a map for a coffee company. And we as agents will then make suggestions and see if we can sort of match the style to the right job. Um, sometimes it's a matter of matching a category, like are they, do, do they want 2D? Do they want CG? Do they want uh, more of a portrait? Or, so it's, it's sort of a filtering process that happens when we talk to clients. So it's a, it's, it's a bit of a clearinghouse because we have about 60 artists, a little bit less actually. And so our, one of our jobs is to facilitate and be professional in the way that we help our clients to to actually get what they want and look really good and make it easy for them. So when a job comes in and it can actually be for a specific artist, like we saw so-and-so on your website and we think that this would be great for our um, sausage brand or whatever that, I mean, you know, the advertising is, is uh, widespread. It can be anything. It can be like a pharma client or, or um, yeah, anything. And you, we know what that is. You see ads all the time um, in print, uh, on billboards, etc. cetera. So a request comes in, and we work actively to find the right artist. We we listen to the client. We ask what, what the scope is, what the budget is, what the timeline is, what are the expectations of delivery, um, and and what are they looking for. So we listen to that. We take in the brief, and then we talk to our artists and we pitch a few. Or if they have somebody in mind that they like, we work out the schedule. We have a job. It came in. It's this budget uh and they want uh, four pieces and you have four weeks to do it are you interested and that's when the really interesting job happens for us as agents because it's not just like do you want this or not if you do here it is it's more of a dialogue of like um we think that this would be a great opportunity for you because of a b and c it can be parlayed into something bigger if it's a small job with a little budget, it can be actually a really good thing because if you produce it, we have something to show to this bigger client. And so you can get a bigger job with more money, etc., and more uh, cachet. So it's very much a sort of, um, again, the music reference. I liken it to being on a board, you know, when you're mixing in a studio. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like fee high, low visibility or high visibility, low fee. And then there's some other levers as well as well that happens. But it's always like uh, keeping in mind what is best in the long run for the artist and for the agency as a result. You know, how can we build this artist presence and uh, develop the skills further and further and elevate that person's brand? So sometimes we work with artists that are just pretty much like right out of school you know that's happened a few times uh, that have such great talent they're so distinct they're so amazing that we want to capture them and help them and sort of protect them uh pave the way for them hold their hands and make sure that they don't get taken advantage of essentially sometimes we sign artists that are very skilled that have been working for a long time gone to to the best schools and already have fantastic clients, you know. In that case, it's still it's still the same method to elevate them to uh, elevate their brand so that they can be more and more visible and and do better and better better jobs. So it's a it's it's very much about development. I think our agency is is unique in that way because. Some agencies just want to book. They want to book. They want to make money. We are interested in relationships and uh, thinking about the long game, you know, and and that's that's something that I can't tell you how it became like that. It just my my theory is that it reflects uh, who the people are that work in the business.
1: Well, I would say that where it starts is the name of the mm -hmm. company and how in alignment Mm -hmm. that is with Mm -hmm. you and your intuition. So I'm not nearly as surprised about the evolution of your agency and developing people and bringing all these different pieces together, because that actually is one of the things that uh, I found unique that I wanted to dig into deeper is Mm -hmm. that in general, an agency's job is to say this person's looking for this specific square peg to fit in a square hole. And it's our job to negotiate the maximum rate because our business model is we get 10% of their revenue, right? So without going too deep into the weeds, if we strip all the development and all of the relationships out of it, is your core business model the same where Netflix comes to you, you get an artist, Netflix plays the artist and you get 10% or is there mm-hmm. something else driving your revenue model? Because the revenue model is then what drives your intentions for how you want to help certain parties.
0: No, the revenue model is exactly that. It's a commission-based, uh, you know, income for us. So we get a commission on every job that comes through. Um, sometimes there are no fees. You know, we some of our artists do jobs for uh, not pro bono exactly, but for very low fees. And in those cases, we don't take a commission. But that is the revenue stream. That's, that's the only revenue stream that we have. Uh, and, you know, I, I think pretty much every agent in this business in illustration and photography works the same way.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's very, very similar to any of the the major agencies in Hollywood as well. But the unique part of this that really kind of threw me off is given that the the basic revenue stream of just about any agency is we're going to get X percent of commission of our artists. It's very uncommon to actually be interested in developing your Mm -hmm. talent. But if there's one thing that I want people to walk away with from today's conversation, as from the artist side, not from the client side, but from the artist side, is that your revenue stream is based on you are the perfect fit for this job, for this client, and that's going to be based on your past experience. But what if I am somebody that has decided I've been doing 2D my entire career, now Mm -hmm. I want to get into 3D or I want to get into painting, I need to be able to take all of my past experiences, my past skills, and frame my story in such a way that I can still be valuable in that next realm. How can you advise somebody to be able to better tell their story as a creative such that it's not, well, sorry, you don't do 2D, so you can't do it. And it's, again, this idea of Mm -hmm. intuitively, you seem like the right fit how do how can they better tell their story so they can get recommended or get considered for jobs where on paper, maybe they don't have the credits or the experience necessary?
0: Well, we have to have something to show. I mean, everything is built on like, well, what have you done before? You know, like in Hollywood, it's uh, if you want to write a certain script or get it produced, you, you, what have you done before? So I think in that case, and it's interesting that you bring this up because we do have an artist that actually changed horses midstream in a way. And we're excited about it. So with him, we're willing to wait for him to build up his portfolio in this new style. He's veering away from his old style because he's really interesting and amazing and unique. And so we're willing to sit it out like, okay, we'll wait for you. Uh, We'll keep selling your old style meanwhile, and then we'll see if we can sell this to a client so you can get more pieces for your portfolio. Uh, I think that the idea that we're willing to wait and develop talent is that it's a lot of fun. It's just more fun for us to do it that way. I mean, if you if you don't, I can see that you run the risk of becoming a booker. You kind of like, you want A? Okay, here you go. A, a, you want B? Okay, there you go. It's more interesting and more creative to be involved uh, as a creative in the process uh, of, of trying to, you know, build somebody's career and develop somebody as an artist. Mm-hmm. That's where the juice comes for us. Because... Combined, the agency consists of people that have worked decades in the the industry. And my experience is that there's chances to work on a long game and to work as a creative with an artist uh, and and giving input like from all of the experiences that we collectively have. There's not very many chances uh, at agencies to do that. So I think it's it's just a more fun way to work.
1: I couldn't agree more, but I also think you're a bit of a unicorn, at least from my own personal experience, <laughs> from the experience of many others where I do. And again, I don't want this to be a hyperbolic blanket statement, but I think more often than not, especially if we're looking at the the bigger Hollywood centric agencies, it's very much you need a square peg. Here are square pegs. Oh, you're looking for a round peg. Here are all the best round pegs. wait you're a square peg, but you want to be a round peg. Uh, I don't know. I I think you're better off can just, you stay as a square peg because we can get you work right away. That's a big area where a lot of the the people in my community get stuck. And uh, let's assume for the moment that you're not nearly as interested in developing somebody's talent and you don't want to play the chess game. And it's more about, we need to get the quickest and most consistent revenue stream possible from our clients. I'm a square peg. I want to be a round peg. You said you have to have something to show. What other advice would you give to me if I know for a fact I'm done being a square peg and I want to be a round peg, how can I make that happen?
0: I would say, um, just do it. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's just, if you feel that strongly about it, if you really want to be uh, a film editor and before that you were an actor, you should just dive in, make it happen. You know, um, that's the best advice I can come up with. Um, I I have done it. I wanted to be an agent. You know, I had no experience and I, I was a square hole in a square, you know, I was that. But I just made it happen by breaking and just like committing completely to a new career. So, yeah. That's not a very good answer, I don't think. No, I think that that's
1: actually actually a really good answer. Uh, But it scares people because it means, oh, I just actually need to go out and do the work. And it's not, oh, oh, that secret sauce that I never heard of. But now let me ask you this last question, just because very rarely do I get to talk to agents at your level to really dig into their brain. Let's say that I'm your artist, you represent me, and I've been a very successful square peg for a long time. And now I definitely want to be a circle peg. But I'm terrified to tell you that because I think you're going to drop me because I'm not going to generate enough immediate revenue for you. Should I be scared that if I want to become a circular peg, you're no longer going to care about me and I should just keep taking the square peg jobs?
0: Uh, As your agent, I would always advise you to not keeping doing the square peg jobs, because the theory is if your if your heart is in it and you love it, it's going to be good. I mean, it's going to be successful because you have passion for it. So I would never advise anybody to stay as a round peg. No, no that, that would not be okay. But it might mean that, yeah, maybe you continue to do your day job as a square peg. And then at night you do your round peg stuff and then we can switch and see if it works.
1: Yeah, Just there's a, a transition I mean? period. You you have to, there's going to be a period where you are taking some of the paycheck jobs, doing some of the square pegs while you're developing your skills and building your reputation as the round peg. And I think that there's, there's just this misconception that I'm just going to flip the switch and I'm going to go from one to the other. And it's a spectrum and it sometimes takes years, but people just want it to happen overnight. Um, But I'm, I'm I'm very happy to hear from an agent's perspective that this is something you would encourage and develop. Yeah, exactly. right,
0: Right. We all have to eat. We do money jobs, bread and butter jobs too. And we do them because maybe that'll be an incredible job for no pay that you want to do next. So it's sort of, yeah, but it's, it, you should never be afraid of working hard. I mean, that's, that's what everything is based on. Um, you've worked hard. I've worked hard. Everybody has to work hard. It's just the way it is. Well, I don't, think, that, I don't <laughs> think, I don't think,
1: I could not wrap it up any better than that, but um, Unfortunately, our time has run out and I yes. could easily do this for a double or more the amount of time <laughs> that we have. But I want Zach, to be very- this is
0: amazing. I, I well, didn't believe you before, but like an hour flew by.
1: I told you it was just going to disappear. Yeah. So we, we might have to reschedule a part two to this. Um, but in I the meantime- yeah, and I think we may do that. But uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you very much for your time and make sure that for those that are interested in learning more about you and your work and potentially connecting, where's the best place to send people?
0: Well, our website is wearesnyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R.com. Uh, my Instagram is aka underscore Christina Snyder and Christina is spelled with a K. Uh, and uh, just check it out there. I'm on LinkedIn as well, but uh, our homepage, your website is, is the best way to check out the artists and all my contact info is there as well. So come on over.
1: (laughs) I love it. Well, I'm going to make sure that uh, all of those are linked in the show notes. Anybody can go to optimizeyourself.me slash podcast. They can subscribe. They can uh, find the link to your episode, get all these resources. Um, But as much as it saddens me to say it, it's been fun and I appreciate the time, but unfortunately we are, we're done for now. But uh, so, so thankful that we had this conversation thank and you. I'm pretty thank confident so I'm reaching much. out and we're scheduling a part two, so. Great,
0: I'll All see right. you soon. thank you so time. much. Okay, yeah. thank you, bye.
1: Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show.